This is the Mahabharata Podcast, Episode 38, The Markandeya Sessions, Part 2. Last time, Markandeya finally opened up and started telling all kinds of stories, ranging from discussions of reincarnation to Brahmin tales to the story of the Flood. Taken at face value, this version of the Flood appears to be derived from the same source as the stories of Noah and Gilgamesh. All three versions apparently date back to the 7th century BC, so it is not at all clear which one takes precedent. What is interesting is the difference in the message. The stories of Noah and Utnapishtim both place the gods as instigators of the destruction, and the gods repent of their destruction by the end of the story. In the case of Manu, however, the flood is more like an act of nature, in which the god Brahma intervenes to save us. In this version, it is Manu's act of compassion that creates the fish, who in turn saves the world. To get back to our story, Markandeya had reached the end of the Purana of the fish and again fell silent. Yudhishthira felt the need to get him going again, so this time he resorted to flattery. He said, You have witnessed the passing of many thousands of eons, and no one has lived as long as you, except Brahma Paramishtin. When there is no more sun, nor wind, nor moon, and the world is reduced to a vast, flat ocean, when the gods and asuras are no more, then you alone remain to worship Brahma. This was enough to get the old guy started. This time, he began with his version of the Four Ages. He began with the Krita Yuga, which is the first or golden age. He said it lasts 4,000 years, with transition periods of 400 years on each end. The next, called the Treta Yuga, lasts 3,000 years, with 300 on either end, while the Dvapar Yuga lasts 2,000 years, with 200 more on each end. Finally, the Kali Yuga, our present age, is a thousand years long, with a hundred years on either end. Put together, these amount to a 12,000 year cycle called an eon, and a thousand of these eons amounts to one day of Brahma. Markandeya then described what we might expect as we neared the end of the Kali Yuga. He said, at the end of the eon, the population increases, foreigners take over the country, women lose their morals, the rains come at the wrong season, false Brahmins will plunder the land, and men will cease to follow their dharma. Peasants will become kings, and kings will become peasants. Low-caste men will become holy men, and Brahmins will become scoundrels. Finally, the Kali Yuga will come to an end with droughts that kill the crops and dry up all the rivers. Seven suns will appear in the sky and will burn up the earth. Vast clouds of many colors will rise up, and the winds will blow everything flat. Finally, the clouds will rain down, sinking the earth beneath the water leaving nothing but desolate ocean, bereft of any living thing, except, of course, the immortal Markandeya. The sage then elaborated a vision he had of his adventures in this apocalyptic land. He said, In this desolate ocean, with all creatures, gods, and asuras dead, empty of yakshas and rakshasas, in this world without sky or horizon, I wander and become terribly afraid. I swim in all directions, but find nowhere to rest. Then one day I see in the floodwaters a single tall banyan tree. I see a child sitting contentedly on a tree branch. I see this beautiful child sitting there, and I can't figure it out. How can this kid be here when all the world has come to an end? I can meditate like the best of them, and I have seen the past and the future, but this just doesn't make sense. The boy speaks. He says to me, You are very tired, friend, so sit here, have a rest. When the boy says this, I suddenly feel weary of my long life and my human condition. The boy then opens his mouth, and I get sucked in. When I enter his mouth, I see inside of him the entire universe. I see the earth with all its mountains, rivers, and cities teeming with life. 
I see the Brahmins making their soma, the Kshatriyas protecting the people, and the commoners busy with farming. I wander inside this boy's body, traveling freely wherever I want, but even after hundreds of years, I never reach the end of this vast realm. Suddenly, a gust of wind blows me back out of the boy's mouth. Smiling, he asks, Have you rested well today, Markandeya? Instantly, I become aware that this is a liberated soul before me. I take his cute little feet and place them on my forehead. I say, My lord, I wish to know you better and to understand what I have just seen. The god said, Not even the gods know me as I truly am, but out of love for you, I'll tell you how I created this world. I am called Narayana, and I am the creator of all things as well as their destroyer. I am Vishnu and Brahma, Shiva, Soma, and Yama, king of the dead. Brahmandom is my mouth, Kshatriyas are my arms, commoners make up my thighs, and peasants are my feet. My will moves all creatures. They act not by their own volition, but with their minds controlled by me. Thus I make up all beings, and yet none know me. After seeing all the universe flooded, you became alarmed. I knew it, so I showed you the universe. Now relax, take it easy until Lord Brahma awakens when I shall again create everything. Markandeya said, When the end of the eon comes, I will behold this wonder. This same God also happens to be your ally, Janardana Krishna. You should go to him for refuge, and he shall grant it. Having said this, Markandeya turned to Krishna and bowed to him, as did all the others in attendance. Markandeya then resumed his storytelling with the tale of the frog. This story began with a king, descended from Ikshvaku, named Parikshit. This king was out hunting one day when he heard a beautiful voice singing. Following the sound, he came upon a lotus pond, and near its banks he saw a beautiful woman picking flowers and singing. The king interrupted her and asked her to whom she belonged. The girl only replied, I'm a virgin. This was good enough for the king. He said, I want you. The girl would only agree on the condition that she never be shown water. Parikshit readily agreed to these terms, and he packed her up in his chariot and took her back to his capital in Ayodhya. Perhaps because of her questionable background, Parikshit apparently did not make her his queen. Instead, he set the girl up in a secret apartment and stayed with her every chance he got. The king's ministers were troubled to have the king off doing things behind their backs, so they interrogated the servants to find out more about the king's new obsession. They questioned one of the maids, and she told them that the one strange fact was that water was forbidden in her quarters. This gave the chief minister an idea. He ordered the construction of a pleasure garden that was devoid of water. When it was completed, the minister presented this to the king to enjoy as he pleased. The king immediately fetched his concubine and took her to this dry park. The two toured the garden, enjoying the trees and flowers as they went. At some point, they entered a mature grove of trees. At this spot, the pavement below their feet gave way, and the couple suddenly sank into a pool of water. As the pair sloshed into the water, Parikshit's feet touched the bottom of the pool. His partner, however, continued sinking downward. The king thrashed angrily, calling out to the servants, and then turned and could not find his mistress. He repeatedly dove into the tiny pond, but could not find her. In desperation, he ordered the servants to drain the pond. All the water and debris was cleared away, but all anyone could find was a big frog. Furious at having lost his lover, King Parikshit announced to his followers that if they desired his love and favor, then they should kill as many frogs as they could find. A general massacre of the frogs of Ayodhya commenced. As the genocide reached its peak, the scattered remnants of the local frog population approached their frog king and begged his protection. 
the king of the frogs promised to go to the human king and to try to make peace. The frog then dressed up as a penitent and went before King Parikshit. He begged the king to seize the slaughter, but the king was unmoved. He once again vowed to eradicate the frogs. King Frog then made a confession. He said, Well, you know that girl you lost? She's my daughter. Her name is Sushobana. She's a bad girl and has played this trick on several kings before you. The king demanded petulantly, Give her to me now. She's mine. The king then summoned the girl and ordered her to obey the king. He also angrily cursed the girl to have good-for-nothing kids. Now that Parikshit had his infatuation back, he was happy again. He bowed to the frog patriarch and called off the froggy death squads. Markandeya says Parikshit had three sons with this girl, named Shala, Dala, and Bala. In his later years, King Parikshit became interested in asceticism, so he had Shala consecrated as king and left to live in the forest. Unfortunately, Shala was dissolute and rude and only liked hunting. One day, while out hunting, Shala shot a stag with an arrow, but his horses were not fast enough to catch up with the fleeing beast. Shala cursed his charioteer and told him to drive faster. The driver said, You shouldn't bother. Not even Vamya horses could have caught up with that stag. Shala said, Tell me about these horses or I'll kill you. The driver replied, The Vamyas belong to the Brahmin Vamadeva and are the fastest horses in India. Shala then directed the driver to take him directly to Vamadeva's ashram. Shala bowed to the Brahmin, saying, Reverend sir, I have shot a stag and it has run off. I must borrow your horses so I may catch it. The Brahmin agreed to lend the horses, but reminded the rude boy that it was only a loan and the horses must be returned forthwith. Shala quickly jumped down and traded out his horses for the fancy Vamyas. The creatures burst into action, pulling the cart at greater speeds than Shala had ever traveled. He captured the stag and then raced home, telling his driver along the way that Brahmins have no need for horses. These animals should be placed in a royal stable and nothing less. Having convinced himself, he stabled the horses at his palace and forgot about the Brahmin Vamadev. Vamadev had pretty much assumed that this kid was trouble, so he wasn't too surprised when the horses were not returned. Vamadev sent one of his disciples to see the king and demand the horses back. Shala gave the student the same excuse he made when he took the horses. He said they were too good for a simple Brahmin and should belong to a king. The student took this message back to his master and the old sadhu became angry. This time Vamadev went to Shala in person to demand the return of his horses. The king again refused, but offered him a more appropriate mount for his kind, a pair of bullocks. Shala should have seen that this guy had a curse coming on, but he held his ground nonetheless. Vamadev got angry and said, By my vows and austerities, may you be stabbed and quartered by iron giants with sharpened spears. Shala was clearly not acquainted with all the stories of Brahmin curses that we've seen, because he was not fazed by this threat. Instead, he countered by saying, Now everyone can see how cruel and murderous a Brahmin can be. Let them cut you down with their sharp spears. Vamadev replied, a Brahmin is not to be questioned in word, deed, or thought, and the sage who has reached Brahman can humble even the mighty. Just then, a team of Rakshasas appeared with their spears and killed the unrepentant king where he stood. The ministers rushed off and fetched the prince Dala and made him king. Dala's first order of business as king was to avenge his brother's death. He ordered a poison tip arrow, which he planned on shooting at Vamadev. This was no surprise to the sage, so he ordered it to fly at the king's ten-year-old son instead. Dala fired off his arrow at the Brahmin, but it changed course, 
flew into the women's quarters and killed the crown prince where he was sleeping. The half-frogs must be pretty bloody-minded because Dalla was still undeterred. He prepared a second arrow with poison and set it to his bow. This time, Vamadev, presumably to spare the dynasty, only paralyzed the king, so he could not fire their arrow in any direction. Finally admitting defeat, Dalla said, Okay, okay, I give up. Long live Vamadev. Vamadev said, Now touch your queen with the arrow and you shall be free from your guilt. The king did as he was told and then returned the horses to Vamadev and they all lived happily ever after. That's all for now. Next time, we'll hear more stories from the Markandeya sessions. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.